Welcome to 50 Date Night Screams. I'm Amber Tresca. And I'm Mike Tresca. We're a married couple who decide to celebrate our 50th birthdays by watching some old movies. A lot of old movies. Join us as we watch 50 movies on our date nights and have fun dissecting them. As a bonus, each episode is accompanied by an original character I created and designed for use in your tabletop role-playing games. Many of the movies we watch are unrated, but this podcast is not. 50 Date Night Screams contains mature themes and is intended for adult audiences, so take care when listening. Plus, there are spoilers. Check the show notes to see where you can watch this movie before you listen. We're glad you're here. Have a seat, grab a glass of your favorite beverage, and get ready to scream along with us. McNaughton. Lawyer, ain't he? Was. Might have been governor if he hadn't taken a nap at the wrong moment. While he was driving? Yeah. You gonna fix him up? Yeah. For a solo job, ain't it? How did you know? Either that or you've got a funny way of writing. Hello, and welcome to episode 28 of 50 Date Night Screams. I'm Amber Tresca. I'm here with my co-host, Mike Tresca. Hey, Mike, what's good? Hello, beautiful. I, uh, I'm looking forward to this because I, I'm hoping you can explain the movie to me. That would be great. <laughs> I will do my best. I did watch it twice. There were some little moments that came out to me the second time, and I also understood the plot better. It's one of those things where I think telling it out loud is going to be challenging. You almost have to see the movie to to get it. So... It may be confusing if one hasn't seen the movie. But this movie is available for free on the YouTubes. So check the show notes and you can watch it there. Or at least watch the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes to understand what we're talking about. It may help to have both the visual and the uh, and the audio. I've read three summaries and I still, I think I got it, but... I think you can help me for sure. And our, and hopefully our listeners, yes. All right. Well, we will do our best. Okay. The movie is Strangers of the Evening from 1932. The director is H. Bruce Humberstone, and it has a 5.0 out of 10 on IMDb. A little bit higher than a lot of the movies that we see, which is odd. <laughs> Whatever, internet. Whatever. Cause... Whatever. <laughs> Okay. For this movie in particular, <laughs> whatever. Okay. It is one hour and five minutes. The hilarious tagline is, Snooky, tell me what happened. <laughs> Snooky. That's pretty good, actually. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Okay. So, some content warnings. This movie doesn't have a lot that I think is too objectionable in the movie, So I will just say that the content warnings include murder, violence, and death. That's probably every movie that we review for this series. Uh, It's it's pretty tame, all things considered. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so this movie is actually based on a book called The Illustrious Corpse by Tiffany Thayer. And it is called out in the credit line, which that's nice. I looked for the book, couldn't get my hands on it. You can get it, but I think uh, it's it's a very expensive type of thing that you have to special order from somebody. 
But anyway, it was nice that they credited the book. Sometimes the movies don't do that at all. Yeah. Okay, so the movie starts out with a street scene, as so many of these movies do, and an ambulance is pulling up to what we understand to be the Undertaker's office. I don't know. Is that what you call it? Undertaker's office? Parlor. Undertaker's parlor. Undertaker parlor. Thank you. So mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. men driving the ambulance move a body inside, and the Undertaker's helper, his name is Tommy, signs for the body. Such a weird thing to do. <laughs> I, mean, I get it, but also weird. Here, sign for this body. Okay, so we find out that this is Tommy's first job in dealing with a body, either ever or on his own. I'm not sure. So he calls his boss. His boss's name is Dr. Joseph Chandler, and he calls long distance. It's important because you used to, in these days, kids, have to pick up the phone and talk to an operator to make your phone call. So you had to tell her you were calling long distance. And I say her, could have been him, anybody. Anyway, so he calls Dr. Chandler. Dr. Chandler says, do the best you can, but don't worry about it too much. The face of the body is so disfigured that there won't be an open coffin at the funeral. Okay. Now we see where the boss is. The boss is sitting in front of, behind what looks like a bar, (laughs) smoking and drinking with two other men. And we find out that something's fishy here. Okay. They're betting that the body is being buried in New Jersey in the morning. The film takes place in New York City. So it turns out that The deceased that they're talking about was a lawyer and he was a politician. His name was Clark McNaughton. We get the impression that these men murdered McNaughton and they're concerned about an investigation. All right, next we go back to Tommy at The Undertakers and he's talking to another doctor, Dr. Raymond Everett. We know he's a different doctor because he's got he's got a little mustache. So, (laughs) uh, So he's talking to Dr. Everett about this whole situation Gets freaked out, literally, like, runs out the door, says he's going to get a cup of coffee, but Dr. Everett is pretty sure that he's going to go maybe get a couple of beers or something. So now we're out on the street. We see a well-dressed woman walking up. Her name is Ruth Daniels, and she shows up at the Undertaker's parlor. She's going to talk to Dr. Everett. She says to him, somebody followed me here And we find out that that somebody is Ruth's father. His name is Frank Daniels. Ruth and Dr. Everett are dating. They want to get married. And Ruth's father, Mr. Daniels, is not okay with it. Don't really know why. The man's a doctor. He's good looking. He's got the little mustache. So I don't know. He's got that movie star mustache. He's got that thing going on. So I don't understand what the problem is. All right. We see that Dr. Everett and Mr. Daniels are arguing Like, through a window, we never see Mr. Daniels, his face. And we cut away to Ruth. She's beaten feet out of there. She gets in a cab and tells the cab to go to Grand Central. And for those following along, we're now at three plot points, right? So we've got a dead body. We've got the people who are taking care of the dead body. And then we've got this sort of bizarre, will they, won't they, young lovers can't get together because dad doesn't approve. That... That's three. There's more to come. But I just want to keep that in mind. This is one of the reasons why I have such difficulty with this movie. Okay. All right. Yeah. We're eight minutes into the movie here. So what (laughs) happens is, is that Tommy's out on the street smoking a cigarette and he sees Ruth get in the cab. So that is one of the 
little moments in this movie where you've got characters crossing one another on the street, which happens a few times, which is an interesting way to handle that very quickly. Characters coming and going and who sees who coming and going. So we haven't really seen a lot of that in these early talkies. So they get the that idea down for this movie and they use it quite a few times. And it's good to point that out, right? This is 1932. This is an early borderline pre Hayes code film, which is trying for something. I'm not sure if it succeeds, but it's definitely an early film that's sort of doing some experimental stuff and also taking some elements that are very familiar from the old dark house genre and bringing them. There's no house. (laughs) Basically it's got a lot of those elements, which we'll talk about, but yeah. All right, so Tommy comes back to the Undertaker's parlor, and this time Dr. Everett takes off. We never see Mr. Daniels. Now, back out in the street, it is, uh, it's, I think it's daytime. It is nighttime. I can't remember. All right, out in the street, we see two men. They're passing by the alley outside the Undertaker's, and they find a body. So... They're like, well, this is the Undertaker's right here. So they take the body inside and they tell Tommy, we found this man in the street and he's been murdered. And so they basically dump the body with Tommy and take off. And we already know that Tommy's freaked out about having to deal with one body. Now he's got two. All right. So these two men are walking down the street. Apparently this is supposed to be some little bit of comic relief. They're bantering back and forth. They decide that they need to go and tell a cop. They don't want to get involved But they go and grab a cop and they say, we found a man murdered in the street. We took him to the undertakers. The undertaker told you, told us to tell you to go over there. Really convoluted. All right. So the (laughs) cop goes over there. He finds Tommy. Tommy describes what happens. And the cop realizes that he really needs to go and talk to these two dudes more than he needs to talk to Tommy. So he calls his precinct from a payphone on the street. (laughs) And... Tells them what's going on. Then he tries to go and find the two men again. And then the precinct is going to come and pick up the body. I don't know where they're going to take the body. It's already at the undertaker's. In maybe the coroner? I don't know. Anyway, we see Tommy. He's going about his business. He's in there. He's got the two bodies. And one of the bodies starts to move on the table under the sheet. Tommy says, fuck this. Lights out of there. <laughs> so the cops show up. There's nobody there to explain to them what's going on. They find a body there, and they take it. (laughs) They did not take the body that they were supposed to take. They just took the one they found. Right. One of the things I love about this film, which is so funny because it's police procedures terrible. Everything's terrible. But the characters do act in a way like Tommy, upon apparently being utterly freaked out, literally just exits the scene. And it's so funny how, like, some of these characters do a thing, and they don't tolerate They don't go, oh, no, I'm scared. They, like, he runs for his life, and (laughs) we won't see him for a while. The other thing, though, is corpses move. They do. They make noises. This is anyone who's... Yeah, but this was, like, the legs lifted up or something. Like, it was a really big, broad movement. It was not a corpse. But it it was entertaining that they was like, oh, my God, like, there's a zombie. And, like, he just full-on is, like, something supernatural enough that I'm completely... It breaks him, frankly. Um, And he flees. So it is one of those things you're like... Especially this whole genre that we've been in where um, there's a lot of sort of borderline supernatural elements... And the characters sort of tolerate it, but maybe a little scared. He 
has what can only be described as an outsized reaction. So, sorry, Tommy. Yeah, he, peace, outs. All right, next we see the newspaper, the ubiquitous newspaper front page in these movies that Frank Daniels, remember Frank Daniels? Ruth no. Daniels' father? <laughs> yeah. He's been murdered. Ah! And his face was mangled. So the cops thought that the body in this is I'm going to try to explain this. So I'm starting early, Mike. Thank the cops you. thought that the body that was at the Undertaker's, which was McNaughton's body, was Daniels. All right. So at this point, the cops think that maybe Daniels was hit by a car, but the whole situation doesn't make sense to them. They're trying to piece it together. It doesn't make any sense with where the blood was, where the body was, like all of this. Okay. I don't know how they came to this conclusion that the body was Frank Daniels when we don't know what happened to Frank Daniels. His daughter pieced out of there. She would not have even known that he was missing. And this all took place very quickly within like 12 hours. No matter what, there's always one body unaccounted for, right? So I get there's sort of this musical chairs with the corpses as to which one is which. But there's always one that's not accounted for in theory. So it's always interesting because you're, I mean, to your point, like at some point somebody has to make a leap of faith or an accident or a incorrect assumption for this to work at all. Because there's always one dead body that they know presumably, I guess if you don't know McNaughton's dead. No, they knew he was dead. They did know he's dead. So then like to your point, like there's always somebody missing a body. Um, But the central conceit of this entire movie is that somebody confuses things. So- I guess we just have to go with it. But it, it, this is part of the confusion because you're just like, I don't understand how everybody's okay with, you know, we're at two deaths, one corpse. The math doesn't add up and people should be asking questions and they sort of just go right into the confusing circle of, you know, and this gets worse. It doesn't get better. But anyway. Yeah. yeah. 100%. All right. By the way, we're 15 minutes into the movie. All right. <laughs> so now we see Dr. Chandler on the phone again. It turns out him and his cohorts were passing off the body of a man called Jack Lee as McNaughton. They meant to bury Lee in place of McNaughton. But what they wound up doing was actually burying McNaughton's actual body. Nobody opened the coffin at the funeral to check, so they're hoping they're in the clear. All right? Now... Here, <laughs> Mike's raising his hand, which you can't say because this is a podcast, because uh, he has questions. All right. And my question here, I don't know if it aligns with whatever question you're going to ask, Mike, is where was McNaughton's real body during all of this? It was not at the Undertaker's. We now understand that the body that was there was Jack Lee, which we don't know him. Right. No, that's my. I'm like, who the hell is Jack Lee? I don't understand. I at least I got Naughton being a politician and a lawyer. I think we wrote in the notes, right? I get that. Yeah. Uh, who's Jack Lee? I don't. Uh, another guy that they just murdered in place. Why are they switching them? I I definitely get the understanding that in some ways they're trying to prevent forensic evidence showing up for whatever sinister deeds they're committing. I'm not clear on what the sinister deed is anymore because I'm not sure who is really the person they're worry about covering up, I guess McNaughton's the more important corpse, potentially, victim. So Jack Lee is sort of not that important, maybe. Um, And he's sort of a person that any corpse that they may have murdered that they're hoping to um, sort of switch out. I think the problem, which is super weird, is these guys don't come off as particularly menacing. I guess there's like a lot of murdering going on. 
And so for a little while, you're like, are these guys, did they just find these? That They murdered them, right? Like, there's just, they're just sort of this weirdly detached issue. At this point in the movie, we don't know what's going on. Yeah, we just it's know just very odd. That there are supposedly three deaths, but there are two corpses. A corpse got buried, and it was buried in the proper grave. So right. you would think that at this point they would be like, "Whoo, it's buried. We're we're set. We're all fine. We're all fine here." Um, but that's not what happens. I also love the whole idea that like it's so gross, no one will look at it. <laughs> I was like, "What? Does, don't you have a job to do?" Like I understand the face is really messed up, but like, yeah. does that mean you throw all forensics out? It's the '30s, folks. Well, I don't know because funeral customs are so very different based on your faith. And then also I think maybe what's customary in your own family. I know in my family and in your family, Mike, but there's almost always an open coffin. I don't think I've ever been to a funeral where there wasn't an open coffin. But that's not the same thing as forensics, right? I mean, those are two different things, right? No, sort of but viewing. the thing is, is that, yeah, it's, it's, if a person died in such a way that the undertaker couldn't do a good job in making them look as they did in life. I think that's when you do the closed coffin situation. Sure, but that doesn't that doesn't keep the police from figuring. I mean, as my point is, sort of, I get sort of the passerby who would go to the funeral or the wake or whatever would not right. look at the body. But there's fingerprints, there's dental identify. Unless the person was beheaded, which they said wasn't. Well, I don't what, know why that no, sort but of. But what year did fingerprints? I don't recall. What year did fingerprints start to become? That useful. is a good question. I don't know. All right. I'm going to keep talking. And, All right. I'm um, going to look it up. You looked you it up really quickly. So now some detectives come by to talk to Dr. Chandler. Dr. Chandler says he doesn't know anything about this body switching, he, which he doesn't. He doesn't know where Dr. Everett is. He doesn't know where Tommy is. So that's all truthful. But that's basically as far as he's willing to answer their questions. He's worried about the questioning. At one point, you see him have a very long sort of soap opera facial um, uh, close shot where he sort of is thinking and you see him maybe start to put the pieces together. He's still a little confused, but he's starting to understand that this could be problematic for him and his cohorts because they thought that they were in the clear and now there's another murder and another body, but then also not a body, but still a murder. I don't know. All right, so now the the detectives go and find a person named Robert Daniels. He's Frank Daniels' uncle. They're trying to figure out who murdered Frank. Robert is zero help. He's basically like, fuck you guys, which is so interesting because <laughs> he's like, I'm not going to help you. Pre-Haze code, folks. Yeah, pre that's pre-Haze code. So it's very interesting. <laughs> and it's also, to me, I would think that if you were – so hell-bent on not answering questions that you could answer, they might arrest you and try to put more pressure on you to get you to answer these questions. They just kind of accept that he's not going to, that Robert is not going to help. And then they just kind of leave it, leave it there. Hello? Mr. Chandler? They, they just brought him in. All right, Tommy, you take care of him. No, no, it, it doesn't matter. With his face as bad as that, they won't even bother to open the coffin. All right. All right, I'll, I'll see to shipping him early in the morning myself. 
And Tommy, let no one in the shop nor near the body. So now they're like, they've got all these dead ends, the detectives, and they figure that they've got to find Tommy, Ruth, and Dr. Everett. And that's basically their next step. So we see Tommy now. He's reading the papers and seeing what's being reported, and he's smoking and freaking out. <laughs> All right. Um, now we find out that uh, Ruth and Dr. Everett are in Chicago. Dr. Everett is also reading the paper, which I also find interesting because I'm like, does Ruth not read a paper? She clearly hasn't because he has to tell her what's going on. So now they know the cops are looking for them. She finds, this is the way that she finds out that the, her father was murdered, or at least that's what's being reported. All right, so she finds out her father is dead via the papers, which also, I don't know if this was part of the Hayes Code or not, but usually you don't announce a death before you can find the next of kin to tell them what's going on. That's why a lot of times they'll say a person was right. killed in a car accident or something, and the name doesn't get released Sometimes for several days until they can make sure everybody's notified. Anyway, there's also journalistic codes about this as well. They're more, how do we want to put this, Mike? They're not, they're not really anything that anybody really has to abide by. Yeah. But journalists do abide by certain codes when it comes to deaths, especially with people who have taken their own life. And, and in terms of identifying next of kin. So whether or not those were firmly in place at this point, I don't know. But poor Ruth, I don't know. She doesn't even shed a tear. So whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Also, she at first thinks that Dr. Everett, who's now her husband, I don't know exactly when that happened, but is now the her what? husband. What? <laughs> um, yeah. She thinks for a hot minute that he did it. But he persuades her and says, I did not. And she believes him. Okay. <laughs> All right. Why? So. Why? Why? Why did that happen? I don't know. I think What's about his a lot. motivation? Like, was it because he didn't want him to marry? So he yes, murdered that her he father? Had, he, he had means and he had motive. Okay. And they lit out of New York. She, Ruth never saw. The last she knew, her father and her husband were fighting. Arguing. Right. And actually, Dr. Everett, I don't know if she was there to hear this or not, Doctor or, or Frank says something like, get your hands off me. Okay. okay. I, so it did sure. get, it, yeah, it, it, it <laughs> okay. did get to be um, more than you would like it to be between your father and your husband or your husband to be. <laughs> All right. So now the cops are annoyed and we see that there, a man comes in off the street into the precinct. Okay. It's a lot of supposed comic relief here with this this man doesn't know who he is but he says there's been a murder in the alley outside the undertakers oh god are we up to like fifth plot point okay yes so <laughs> this man clearly has amnesia he's not able to tell a lot but he's able to give an address as to where he's been staying and he's been staying with a woman named sybil so the cops decide to go and grab her at this point in the movie is when I'm like, I have no idea how all these plot points are going to come together to be cohesive. They do eventually, but it's really like... Do they? It's too much going on and not in a good way. Okay. Now, at this point, they think this man who wandered in, who has amnesia, they think that he's the one who killed Frank Daniels, the body that they have of the face that's mangled. 
don't know how they identified it as Frank Daniels. And they're questioning him. They bring Sybil in. They're questioning Sybil. Sybil says, there's no way that this man, whom I found on the street and brought in and took care of, uh, killed anyone. And they decide to start calling this man Richard Rowe. She says he's too gentle. She found him in the street. He was naked except for a raincoat. Nice. Sounds like the beginning of a different kind of movie. All right. And maybe they it was. Wish. We, we don't know what went on in, in Sybil's house. Well, she calls him Snooky. So, She's you know, calling him Snooky. All right. Uh, we see That's Sybil the hilarious she, tagline. Snooky. Yes. We see Sybil go and get some bail money to get Richard out of jail because they're holding him on what charge? I don't know. During the questioning, they're questioning Richard Rowe slash Snooky. And you get the impression that it's supposed to be a who's on first kind of situation. It's supposed to be funny. I don't think modern audiences would necessarily find that very, like, it's not laugh out loud hilarious. Once again, I wish I knew what it was like in the theater at the time when this movie originally aired. <laughs> there is nothing in this film that is nearly as funny as I think it really hopes to be to modern audiences, unfortunately. Not one. There's nothing. Like, nothing is funny. There's a lot of, like, attempts, and there's a lot of silliness, but it's not funny. <laughs> not once. All right. Uh, I didn't write down a time stamp for right here, but we might be about half hour into the movie. And somewhere in here, by the way, isn't there a scene where sort of the prosecutor is like, "Where? why aren't you putting all the cops on here? And he's like, I've got cops everywhere. Or is that later in the film? Because I know that one of the reasons the police start getting sort of drastically erratic is they're they're getting a lot of pressure because they don't seem to be able to keep track of any of these corpses or figure stuff out. And there's kind of this rise ratcheting up, you know, my our favorite, you know, DA kind of screaming at the cops and who are like, uh, what do you want me to do? And they're like, you better make an arrest kind of thing. So um, I think that was going on in the background. I don't remember if that happens later or during this point, but I feel like that's what causes some of this. Yeah, so thanks for reading the notes, Mike, because that does happen later. It is in the notes. All right, so let's continue at the current timestamp. Okay. All right, Dr. Everett comes back to the undertaker's office, and he talks to Dr. Chandler. Dr. Everett sees some bloody clothes in Dr. Ooh. Chandler's office. I really don't know. You're an undertaker. Couldn't you have gotten rid, of, gotten rid of those things? I don't know what's going on. Chandler threatens Everett at this point and says, you need to forget about what you saw here. Okie dokie. Everett leaves. We see Chandler put on his hat. Then we see the shadow in the street of someone hit Everett over the head in the alley. So another small moment of a type of a scene that I think we're used to as modern audiences of seeing. The, the shadow situation that you can tell what's going on, but you don't know who's doing it. Just a small, interesting point that I wanted to, to, to note that the... Like, these films are not all, they're not throwaways. They are doing some pretty great things, even if we find the plots inscrutable in some ways. <laughs> okay. So, guess what happens now? Those same two dudes from earlier, remember they found the body that wasn't a body? They find Dr. Everett, and they help him up. And <laughs> Dr. Everett says something like, I don't know what happened. And they're like, are you all right? And he's like, I'm all right. Hey, let's go to a speakeasy. <laughs> so, kind of funny. All right. So, I know that's what I do when I've been mugged is go and have a drink with two people yep. that I don't know. Who may have been the pe people who mugged me? Okay. Right. Who's so, to say? Who's to say? So, uh, Dr. Everett finds out where Sybil lives and he goes over there. 
Sybil says she doesn't know where Richard is. Snooky is gone. But she shows Dr. Everett the raincoat that Snooky was wearing when he showed up in the street and when she found him. So Dr. Everett goes through the raincoat. Reasonable fucking thing to do that nobody in this movie so far has done. Turns out the raincoat is Tommy's. And Dr. Everett finds a note in the pocket with an address that's in Philadelphia. So Dr. Everett first goes to, to Philly and finds Tommy. Tommy's wearing sunglasses. Again, with the humor, Tommy's wearing sunglasses and he says, I'm in disguise. Because he knows that, that they're looking for him. All right, so Tommy tells Dr. Everett what happened that night that a body, another body showed up and that it was moving and that he ran off after that happened. He doesn't know what happened after that. All right, so now Dr. Everett calls Ruth. Yeah, call your wife. Totally do that. If you haven't called your wife lately, just stop this podcast right now. Go and call your wife. <laughs> hey, baby, I just wanted to call you. Oh, wait, we're on a podcast. so We're on right, a call <laughs> right now. It's okay. Um, all right, so we see someone. Ruth's on the phone with Dr. Everett, right? So we see someone breaking into the room that she's in. I don't really know where she is. They do that thing where they slip a newspaper under the door from the outside and they push something through the keyhole to push the key that's in the keyhole on the inside through the lock, and then the key falls. It's caught by the paper that's underneath the lock. They pull that paper out of the room, out into presumably the hallway. Then they have the key to get in that room. Can I can I it's, just interrupt for one second? You can take a yeah. drink while I tell the story. Yeah, that would be great. This was a, a plot... That I spontaneously put together in Zork 1 or Zork 2. So Zork 1 or Zork 2 was a text-based game. And uh, the way we used to play them is so the whole family would get together, my friends, and we would get stuck. You know, so you, you have limited ways that you can interact with. They're not text-based games today. You sort of had verb noun, right? So push key, you know, poke lock, that kind of thing. And uh, this was exactly the way to solve it. And it came to me in a flash. It was really funny. Um, because it was one of those things that, uh, even, you know, this is the eighties when I was playing the game, uh, you know, not accustomed to this keys didn't even work that way, you know, in the eighties, I know it sounds weird to say, um, but it was, it was very much this idea that you could theoretically, if you put something underneath, uh, if there was a key already in the lock, which is important, you could push it out. And then of course, then you'd pull it, the key underneath. So it was just funny because that brought up a core memory of mine because I was so proud. Uh, I'm not sure if it's Zork one or Zork two, it may have been Zork two, because uh, it was a weird, we couldn't understand. Like, we were like, how the heck are you supposed to open a door with when you have no key? Because it used to be you just found the key, right? Normally, in sort of adventures, you would go and the key would be somewhere. This was actually uh, old-timey lockpicking. And uh, they really take their time to show it, right? This is, to your point, like, this isn't like a quick thing. They very specifically, it's probably the most menacing scene in the film, in my opinion. Because you understand what's happening, right? First, you're like, why are these, what are they doing? They're kind of trying to be quiet, the other characters don't seem to understand this is going on. And so you sort of watch this with rising dread, which is weird because of all the parts of this film, which is trying to be funny. Uh, and, you know, there's lots of gruesomeness that's described but never seen. This is one of the most menace and people get, you know, knocked over the head and stuff. This is one of the most menacing scenes because they really do take their time to show the key falling out in that whole process. But it, it did sort of trigger that for me. And I was like, oh, yeah, I did that in Zork. <laughs> yeah. So. Ruth is not facing the door, so she doesn't see what's happening. And 
I have seen this trope before. I couldn't tell you exactly where, but I knew what was happening when I saw it taking place. Maybe younger people would not have quite understood exactly what happened there. And I don't know if this is something that actually could be done in real life or if it was something that was kind of made up for books and movies. Yeah, well, and look, it pivots on the idea that you leave the key in the lock, which I don't think you normally do unless you have one of these older locks Maybe anyway. And then even then, you, yeah, you would assume you would you would take the key out, I, I think. So uh, it's sort of interesting. Yeah, you're in the room, so you don't really need to remove the key. If it's the kind of lock where you go in the room and you lock the door and then you're going to need the key again to unlock the door to get out, then I could see leaving the key in the door because you don't want to misplace it. So you would leave the key in the door just for ease of use that when you went to leave, you could get out easily and not have to go looking for the key if you were forgetful and you misplaced it. But in any case, yeah, it is pretty menacing because you don't know who's coming into this room to come after Ruth, because at this point, there's a lot going on, and you don't know who is sort of committing murders or committing non-murders or knocking people out in alleys. Turns out, it was the cops. It was the detectives that used this trick with right. the paper and the key to come into Ruth's room, which, again, pre-Hayes Code, I don't know if this would enter into it, but as far as I know, this is not a thing that is reasonable. They were looking for her. They did want her, but they didn't knock on the door and say, right. we're here and you need to come out. They just decided to break and enter into her room. Totally. And it definitely, there's the, there are elements of pre-haze code, and this is probably the pre-haziest of the things that happens where you're just like, did the cops just like hack the door to come into the house with unlawful entry and not announcing themselves? Yes. <laughs> yes, they did. And then, so then it's also funny because in some ways, and I think this was a, a thematic choice, you assume the kind of person who would do this is a criminal. Yes. Uh, and it actually turns out to be the cops. So that's a little twist. This is I, really, to me, this is one of the highlights of the film, uh, which is probably not saying much, but it was sort of an interesting yeah. thing because you you're like, who would be that person that would do this? And now we know. Yeah. And I think many people now know more about no-knock warrants and those type of things based on recent events and how they've been explored in the media. I have no idea what the laws would have been in New York City at this time, but I think probably if you wanted to make sure that you were going to make a case against someone and have it stick if it went to a jury trial, etc., you would want to make sure that you weren't doing something like this because a clever lawyer would say, you violated her rights, either if not by the letter of the law, then at least ethically. But it was very menacing. It was um, was an interesting touch. What's the matter? There's another guy on the sidewalk. For the love of Pete. He ain't dead. The street ain't healthy. Wait a minute. Oh, come on, let's get out of here. But we can't leave a guy what's alive. The last time you said we couldn't leave a guy what's dead. We nearly got in Dutch then. Now, Tommy and Dr. Everett go back to the city. And this is where the DA gets involved. Charles E. Frisbee, the DA. 
<laughs> I don't know why I put his name in the notes because it doesn't really matter. Um, so Frisbee's pissed off. He says there's an election coming. There's all these unsolved murders. And this is where we find out that Ruth and Everett are married because they say something like Mrs. and Dr. Everett or something like that or, or Mrs. Everett. So you didn't see them get married. They never referred to each other as husband and wife or anything like that. They were clearly staying in the same room in Chicago together. So presumably they got married in Chicago and then went from there very quickly. Again, I don't know. Usually it takes a couple of days to get a marriage license and so forth, but they managed to uh, do it really fast. All right. Somebody shows up at the DA's office and says that Frank Daniels has been found. His uncle found him. He's actually not dead. He has not been murdered. <laughs> Surprise! Okay, so now they're like, uh, we need to uh, exhume the body that we buried as Frank Daniels. Okay? <laughs> Because it's clearly not him. All right. They think the body belongs to McNaughton, but the face is disfigured, so they actually don't know. They know it's now not Frank, but they don't know who it is, and they think it might be McNaughton. I'm not really sure why they think so, because McNaughton was buried days ago. But then they're like, if this is McNaughton's body, then who's buried in McNaughton's grave? They don't know that either. This is, what is that that joke? Who's buried in Grant's grave or whatever? Who's, who's buried in Grant's tomb? Yeah. Your Grant's tomb, yeah. Ugh. Okay. Now we find out that Snooky slash Richard Rowe is in Trenton. That's in New Jersey. Because he calls Sybil and he says, I don't have any money. I can't get back to the city. They won't let me on the ferry. I don't have any money. So Sybil goes to get him. We are now 55 minutes into the movie. So everything that takes place from here on out takes place in less than 10 minutes. All right, let's land this plane. Okay. <laughs> Please. So we see, now we're in the cemetery. We see some men in the cemetery. They've exhumed McNaughton's body. Dr. Everett and Tommy are there, and they, at the cemetery, they steal the van with the body in it. <laughs> I love this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they drive. I was like, what is their plan? What is their plan? I, I was like, what are I they going to do? And they and they just like basically wait. I mean, it's brilliant in terms of how it works, though. I don't think it was their plan where they basically wait for the bad guys to give them the evidence. And they drive off. with <laughs> Perfect. Scooby Doo couldn't do better. Yeah, I really don't. I really don't know. So there's a lot of figuring out that goes on behind the scenes. Dr. Everett figures out a lot of things that we never see him come to the conclusion. All right. Yeah. So they take this van to the Undertakers and Everett is trying to get the jump on Dr. Chandler. But instead, Dr. Chandler's cohorts come in, and now there's a fight slash slap fight. <laughs> slap fight. Out. Our favorite pre-Hays Code match is slap fighting without a lot of noise and a lot of sped up footage where people just grunt and <laughs> somewhat gently because we're so used to it. It's not. It's not gentle at all. Well, because but we're so they're used not to the, putting in right, the, the, the sound thuds. effects that we're used to. <laughs> so, so it seems it's, it's like a, a real, slap fight. It's a real choreographed fight and you're hearing the real uh room noise, not <laughs> what an editor puts in. Okay. And it's and it well it choreographed is a strong phrase. It's it's rough and t- I mean, again, it's probably realistic, right? It's people sort of slapping and rolling around, but it's really not these, you know, characters facing off and punching each other at a distance. It's very much grappling and grunting and falling all over furniture. 
Um, and it is unintentionally hilarious, usually, because of, again, we're so accustomed to the thuddy s- noises and choreographed fights. I mean, I'm sure that they are choreogra- choreographed. Just not the it same may way, be, for sure. It may be lightly choreographed. It's <laughs> not, it is not a Star Wars level working with some of the most famous stunt people in the industry for weeks and weeks, maybe even months for a minute of a fight. All right? Yeah. I'm sure they choreograph it so that nobody gets hurt, but it also does also appear to be the real actors. And they kind of just go for it. And I think that they just do the best that they can with what they have. There's a fight. You would expect it. These guys are, you know, these guys are bad guys. We don't know exactly what they've done, whether or not they've murdered someone or not, but they were digging up a body in order to hide evidence. So, all right. So Dr. Everett has a gun in the scuffle, back and forth, whatever, whatever. Tommy manages to get Dr. Everett's gun. Tommy has become useful. Finally. First time. Congrats, Tommy. Congrats, Tommy. He stops the fight because he has the gun. And none of these other men have one, which is interesting. So they call Ruth. They call the police. Again, call your wife. Okay. If you haven't called your wife (laughs) when you're involved in a situation and her father has been murdered, stop the podcast. Go call your wife. Um, So they take this coffin over to the police station and the police discover that McDoughton McNaughton. McNaughton is indeed buried in his own grave. Uh, I'm guessing because... Congrats to him. Congrats to him that people can identify him by his face, which is not Mangles. Okay? Uh-huh. Now, at this point, Dr. Chandler admits everything. Okay? He says, this man named Jack Lee shot McNaughton and killed him. Jack Lee freaked out after this happened because McNaughton was a person of some high regard. So he freaked out and ran into traffic. He was hit by a car. His face was disfigured during that accident. And he was also killed. Okay. Dr. Dr. Chandler was trying to avoid a scandal coming out about this situation because apparently there was some gambling going on. And so he tried to bury Jack Lee as McNaughton. But the police took Lee's body by mistake. And so they had to bury McNaughton in his own vault. It was Jack Lee's body that they thought was Frank Daniels with the mangled face. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Got it? So, Are we all clear? No. I No, not at all. All right. So wait a minute. So the, the identities of these people matter. So Jack Lee is sort of a hitman? Is that no, no, he's, it was an accident. They were fighting over something. Oh, right. And McNaughton was a lawyer and a politician, and he was he may have been consorting with people that it would have been a scandal had it gotten out. So McNaughton is the sort of problem, right? Because I guess of who he is politically and a lawyer, he's the embarrassing death in this. Yes. They were trying to obfuscate how he died. All right. They didn't want anyone to know that he'd been murdered by Jack Lee. Right. Jack Lee was killed in an accident. So to me, there may have been some questions as to why people were at the place that they were at and what they were doing there. But you had a person who murdered another person and then that person ended up dead. Nobody, Nobody else would have been implicated in that situation. So to me... Better that you admit, yeah, we're running an underground gambling ring. Oopsie. 
tried to make it stick rather than the murder situation. Right. Like, to me, be upfront about the murder situation and then try to put that on the DA to make other charges against you. But that's not what they it did. Yeah. They were just it just seemed like it made everything worse. Made everything, everything just made got worse. Everything worse i really Very don't I, so well because the other fashion. thing is two people did die like there's not like yes. jack lee's death isn't really it's not as if there was somebody secretly murdered i guess is the point if one of the deaths was not publicly visible then i would get that you would be like okay then the switch makes sense the switch doesn't make any sense because everybody knows both of them died so there's always a corpse missing in the chain not everybody knows because jack lee there was never a discussion of a funeral for him or burying him, and nobody seemed to be looking for him. They do talk about the fact that there are a lot of unsolved murders, but nobody ever found his body, knew where he was, none of that. So it's possible that his murder, or, or his death rather, was completely unknown. Right. Okay, so that's why they were trying to pass off his body as McNaughton's. Right, and problem is some of these identities really get explained late, so the explanation, it's not that the explanation doesn't hold up. It's that you spend most of the movie going, I don't understand why they, like, why right. is there confusion or why is it? Right. So, you know, this is the kind of stuff that if, if it had been established early, you'd be able to buy in a little bit more with what's happening. It just feels like, don't worry about it. Here's the reasoning. You're just going to have to trust us. And by the way, it's too late by then because it's already being sort of explained. But okay. All right. I, I, I've, thank you. I think I understand better. Okay. Well, <laughs> I mean... The situation was that they were trying to cover up one crime with many more crimes. With another, yeah, with multiple crimes. It just seems like right. it spiraled out of control, essentially. And yeah. I think what the movie was trying to do was make it into a thriller whodunit. But so much was left out that, like, we needed this exposition at the end to understand. Yeah. Like, it just wasn't all laid out. I think the movie would have been better played had we understood about the connection between Jack Lee and McNaughton from the beginning. There still would have been a lot of unknowns going on, but you would have understood the body switching situation better because right. I had to watch it twice to understand. Yeah. At that time, did you go to see a movie more than once? Like, I don't even, I don't even know. I can't imagine. I, I don't know. Take him out and book him for a fag. Have we got to get a name for it? Give him one. Yeah. You're Richard Rowe. Am I? Mm. Richard Rowe. Gee, ain't that swell. A name I can remember. Say thanks. So what happens now, remember they're all standing around in the police station, by the way, with a coffin open the body in it that has been buried you, you can't see it's just like open right the coffin is like you open see it where the you face would see be. so you're facing the coffin and seeing the lid open you're not seeing anything inside the coffin but what i'm trying to say is that they brought <laughs> a coffin that was in a vault containing a body for several days inside mm -hmm. into their precinct in order to look at it yep i don't know how they normally do it i would think at Perhaps the morgue or the coroners or the undertakers, or if it's the X-Files, you do it outside graveside. Okay, <laughs> you don't bring this body inside because it probably smells. Even with embalming and all of that, it's probably still not great. 
in addition, again, it's 1932. I don't know the laws. Usually you have to go through a lot, which I learned from the (laughs) X-Files, to get a body exhumed. You can't just, like, if you were, for instance, Mike, to die, and we buried you, (laughs) and then somebody wanted to exhume the body, were I still living, I presume that somebody would have to go through me to get to you. Okay. Unless there were really compelling reasons not to, but that would take time. There would be a judge involved, et cetera. By the way, so I did the math while we were, I did the research. Um, Dental and and fingerprint forensics were both uh, late, you know, 18, you know, early 1900s. Um, So they, they absolutely had the ability to do that. Whether or not they did and it was commonplace is probably a broader question, but yeah, they had the ability to fingerprint. They had the ability to use dental if they wanted to. Um, but again, this is pre Hayes code. And I think there was less concern about making the police look competent. So that is not a concern. Let's just put it that way. Right. And also I, I say just because these things were in existence doesn't mean that they were accessible or in use. Right. Just because it's available doesn't mean it's accessible, I guess is what right. I'm saying. And, and if those things were in use, it would have made this movie completely <laughs> you know, you would not be able Very to. Very short film. Yeah, the same way. The same, yeah, the same way. It's kind of like you know, drop your phone down a well, and that, or you know, you're out in the middle of the woods and there's no cell service, and that's how they get right. away with horror movies today. Let me set the scene again because it's complicated. All right, everybody's standing around in the precinct with this body <laughs> coffin. Just then, Richard Rose slash Snooky and Sybil walk in, and Ruth goes, "Holy shit!" That's my dad, Frank Daniels. Okay. <laughs> plot twist upon plot twist. Snooky was Frank Daniels all along. And this is one of those things that if the characters had been in the same room, it would immediately been resolved. If this had happened with another movie we watched where it's so interesting, where once the characters are in the same room, the end. The end. But because the plot keeps them from seeing each other... You, you don't get that resolution. It's always so sort of funny. But yes, to your point, like, oh, if they had only looked at each other once, then I would have right. solved the Well, if the Ruth confusion. and Dr. Everett hadn't skipped town. Right. All right. Frank still doesn't remember anything. And now the movie ends, as many of these movies do, with because the one couple is already married. So we can't, you know, that's already said and done. We can't pin our hopes on that it does yeah, look like can't pin it on the hot couple can't so pin you on have that. to go with this, yeah <laughs> this we have to couple. go with frank and sybil who are apparently going to get married which makes oh. a lot of sense sure you know let's <laughs> let's let's marry a person who doesn't remember who they are or whatever can make decisions and uh let's leave that by the wayside so now the movie ends with the last little scene which is the phone rings remember they're in the police precinct Someone is calling to report another body in an alley on 52nd Street. The ha, end. Ha, 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 ha. It's a dangerous place to be, 52nd Street. I quite like it today. Maybe then it was terrible. Uh, now we know why it had to be in the police station so they could set up that joke. Correct. Because that was the joke. The Correct. Punchline. Okay. So there's a few things that we don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> Just a few? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name one and let me see if you have any more. Who hit Frank on the head? We don't There's know who two did that. sort of henchmen run by the main villain, right? There are two henchmen sort of running around. At least there are more, I right. think, than that. So I sort of so blame everything Dr. on them. Chandler. But yeah, yeah. So Chandler's what minions. What possible I actually... reason would they have had? Doctor Everett 
had motive, means, and opportunity. So if he didn't hit Frank on the head, who did? Also, are we to presume that Dr. Chandler hit Dr. Everett on the head? I think so. I think that's right. what we're supposed to understand. I guess. These criminals are bad at criminaling, just for the record. But yeah. And where was McNaughton's body during the whole situation that they were like, oops, Jack Lee's body's missing. Now we can just substitute McNaughton's body. What they do, take it over to the funeral parlor? And because he was a person of note, there would have been a big funeral with lots of people in attendance. How do you show up at the undertaker's or the the um, the funeral home and say, oh, <laughs> this is actually his body? Like we right. see Tommy sign for a body, but in no other instance does anyone seem to have to sign for a body. Okay. Right. I mean. Right. No. Yeah. I don't. Even before I go and get my blood taken, I have to give my identity. (laughs) Well, you are dealing with 19, past the 1930s Hays Code. And before the Hays Code, you know, who knows what you have to sign for. I just, yeah, I know. I thought it was just so funny because the signing for the body in the beginning was such a big to do. Yeah. Who owns the funeral home? I think um, the Undertakers. I think that's Dr. Chandler's. Right. So he's sort of got. A laundry service for corpses, right? In some ways, right? When by laundering, Maybe. I mean he can essentially theoretically dispose of corpses using right. this parlor, this funeral parlor. Right. However, none of the people he's hired seem to be on board with it, right? So you got both De- Dr. No, Everett they don't know and Tommy. So it's sort of a weird thing, too, because in theory, this is a good idea as a criminal, right? So you're going to dispose of bodies because you're going to be controlling the output of what happens to those bodies. But no one who works there agrees to that, right? Dr. Everett goes one direction. Tommy goes the other. Tommy sort of calls, who's he call in the beginning? Was it Chandler? Yeah, he calls Chandler. Or is it Dr. So he is theoretically in the employ of Chandler. And they have a yes, weird dialogue he where he's like. They're in, they're in his employ, yeah. But Dr. But I mean, Chandler employ, is a criminal. He's doing things right. that they are not aware of. Right. So they, they're not criminally uh, no. in in league with him. I Dr. Guess is Everett is the outlier here because at one point somebody says, why does the doctor have his office at the undertaker's parlor? And Dr. Chandler's like, mind your business. So yeah. we really, I and mean, Tommy makes comments too on the phone to, to Chandler where he's like, I know you told me whatever. I don't remember exactly how he says it, but he definitely says like, I'm supposed to report something weird or whatever. And I'm just reporting it. Well, he's just calling his boss. As I, right. I mean, as any of us would do, if you were in that circumstance and somebody dumped a whole fucking body at you, that's not how bodies normally come in the door. But right? all this could have been solved if he had some of his criminals working at the parlor. Because then the two people who were primary witnesses right. who well, were involved true. with this if they would were have in, been if they were aligned. In on it. Right. Right. So, right. Yeah. Then Tommy wouldn't have suggested getting a cop and all and right. all of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So Chandler, it's his fault for being caught. For this is relevant. Bad. I'm springing this up because we'll yeah. talk about it in a minute. I got but you. I because that I got my, for me to try and wrap around like who's actually even the villain, right? This is mostly almost seems like nobody's fault. Like it was just a bunch of randos who got shot and killed, unfortunately, but there is somebody behind it. It is Chandler. They were trying to cover it up. Yes, they were trying to cover it up and and having a hard time doing so because processes and other people, they did not close the loop on all of these things. So 
if Dr. Chandler had been at his own business when Frank was brought in, knocked out, not dead, then the whole situation would have been avoided. Also, had there been a doctor in attendance, had Dr. Everett been there to examine Frank, first of all, he would have known who he was, and then second of all, would have known that he was not dead. Right. Okay. (laughs) Way to go, Tommy. By the way, by the way, by the way, Tommy took Frank's clothes off. Frank was naked. All right. (laughs) You make a good point. To prepare a body, I'm assuming that this is what is done, that you remove the clothing. But he took this man's clothes off and never realized that he was still breathing. Well, look, we haven't talked about this, but they definitely set up that Tommy is not fully in control of his faculties, right? There's definitely a sort of like Tommy's meant to be comic relief kind of. He's a little bit of the Elmer from one of the other shows. Um, So there's definitely like Tommy's not quite right. And I think it's implied that you're going to assume the hilarity that ensues is because Tommy isn't isn't making good choices. But still, um, yeah, as soon as you poke at this, there's a lot of things you just go. I don't there's so many plot points they had to gloss over um, to make this work. So, yeah. Well, Tommy also appeared to be quite young. And as we all know, your frontal lobe isn't fully developed until you're 25. So maybe, you know, yeah, (laughs) you know, he, I mean, he could have been anywhere from 17 to 22. I don't, I don't know. His response to things was just a beat feet. So I don't blame him. Yeah. Except when he gets a hold of that gun. Well, we've got you this time, young lady. Get me chief operator then. This is the police talking. Are you arresting me? You bet your sweet life we are. On what charge? Suspicion of murder. Mike, here's the big question. (laughs) Is this a horror movie or is it something else? No. No. It is not a horror movie. I'm not even going to belabor this. We're not even going to have a long discussion about it. It is not a (laughs) horror movie. I'm not quite sure how I am going to classify it for the show notes and the social media and so forth, because it is not a fair play who done it. It's an old dark house genre, which is yeah. very much lots of characters, lots of people running in and out. It's not an old dark house, though, and that's sort of one yes. of the weaknesses of the of the plot, right? Which is old dark house, the idea is that the house constrains the characters and they're sort of trapped in the house for whatever, you know, come up with stupid reason. And then they sort of move from room to room and have dialogue. The problem, of course, is these characters have agency. They drive around. They're talking. They're doing things. So a lot of the old dark house tropes are are prevalent. But they're outside or going to a police station or going to a funeral parlor. And they're not really constrained. So a lot of the things where you'd be like, oh, they're stuck there or, oh, they didn't see each other just seems absurd. Um, So it's, it's kind of an old dark house without the house. Maybe the city is supposed to be the old dark house. Old dark. Yeah, probably. But still, like, now it turns into a much more fungible Well, because they're in three different thing. cities. This yeah. movie spans three different yeah. cities. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to some ratings. And Ugh. we have our own homegrown rating system, which is we're going to give it between zero and five knives, glasses of wine, and screams. All right. So knives represents... What was the body count? How scary was it? Was it gory? Did it live up to its title? So between zero and five knives, how many are you going to give it, Mike? Um, I'll give it one and a half knives. Uh, There's a decent amount of murder and fake murder and sort of accidental murder. So 
I wouldn't go. I think that's probably being generous, but I do feel like, uh, you know, there's a dead core. As you mentioned, sort of there's like this mangled face that they keep talking about. That's pretty disgusting. And they all sort of wrinkle their noses and like have to look at it. We don't see it. Um, so I feel like conceptually it's there. I mean, from the viewer perspective, there's almost nothing. It's bloodless, actually. Um, Tommy p- pulling the gun on somebody is probably as exciting as it gets after the slap fight. But, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm willing to be generous on this point only. So one and a half. Okay. I'm going to give it one. There was two mm-hmm. bodies. Both of them died prior to the movie, even starting. It was not scary. It was not gory. It did not live up to its title, which is strangers of the evening. Not really sure what that's about. Oh, I so, know it's about. I'm just going to give it one knife. All right, yeah. let's move on to glasses of wine, which represents how fun it was to watch and did it have any unique moments. How many glasses of wine would you say, Mike? If it wasn't for that scene with the key, I'd give it zero, to be honest, because I hated wow. this. Like, this was so confusing and so challenging for me to follow. It wasn't bad. It was boring. Like, it was just so to like, d- just didn't succeed. But I actually like that scene. Um, I felt like that was interesting. I actually thought the characters were pretty good. I mean, Tom was kind of annoying, but like, um, the female lead was actually really good. I thought she did a great job with what she had. She didn't have a whole lot, but she did well. Sometimes you see these very, they're actually very beautiful actresses, but they, they, you know, that you get the vibe that they're maybe, you know, not, they're more there to sort of look attractive and then act. And she did a great job, I think on both. I think she did a good job. And I thought the male lead, uh, Dr. Everett was good. Actually, everybody sort of acted their little hearts out, but it just wasn't fun to watch. It just wasn't for me. So it gets one. I'm going to give it two glasses of wine. And the reason why I'm going to do this, it's not because I actually liked the movie. (laughs) I did not understand it the first time we watched it. I did have to watch it a second time and think about it a lot. And because I often think through my fingers as a writer, I had to like make notes in order to sort of make sense of the movie, even though... Even after doing so, I still had a lot of unanswered questions about the plot. And I don't know whether that's because I just didn't understand or whether it was really, these threads really were left not tied up. That is adorable. Can we just pause? You think through your fingers. I love that. Can we like have that as a quote? That was very cute. Yeah, I do. I think that that is how I That is adorable. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Continue. Sometimes things aren't really real until I... They come out through my fingers. I, I probably the same way, honestly, but yeah. I just the way you put it was. You great. never thought so, of okay. it that way Sorry, before. Please continue. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, I did like the little touches of the small moments of characters passing one another in the street and making note of one another, and that which I completely missed. Completely missed that. I didn't right, see that at all. Happened several times, which I found to be just um, great movie making skill, and then some of the other. Small moments, the body moving, the thing with the key, and you have no idea who's coming in, um, and it turns out to be the police. Those were some really great moments that clearly there was a lot of thought and attention applied to those, and I can appreciate that. Because you had to watch it twice, and maybe, I don't know, I, I, I can't find this quote. So if anyone who's listening has any idea as to who said this. And I, I want to apply it to a big name director saying it, but I can't recall where I heard it or who it was that said it. And I all the, the internets are failing me. I can't find it. Is that they said that 
if you've only seen my movie once, you haven't seen it. Mm. Okay. That sounds like a Kubrick thing, but yeah. It sounds mm-hmm. like Kubrick, maybe I could see Spielberg saying that. I could also see Hitchcock saying that. I don't know. In, in any case, I do sometimes think that it is important to see a movie more than once to truly understand it. Although there's plenty of movies that we're glad to see the back back end of and we don't want to watch more than once. I had a better appreciation upon the second viewing. Now, in the 30s, when this movie came out, did people go and see a movie more than once? Did you sit through the first showing and then the second showing of the day? Was this common to do so that you could have something this inscrutable and have people and, and assume that people were going to view it more than once? And there's modern movies that are like this as well, that the first time you see it, you leave the theater going, what did I just see? <laughs> and if you are that interested, you will go back and see it again. I find that probably most people are are willing to leave it behind and not watch it again. To me, it bothers me if I watch a movie and I can't understand it. So I will go back and watch it again. And there are a lot of modern sci-fi movies that are like that or thrillers. Anyway, that's very my very long explanation as to why I'm giving it two glasses of wine because these this rating system was designed. <laughs> I'm making it sound like we really had like like we did focus groups on this. Was designed <laughs> to so that the ratings were independent of one another, so that the different facets of the movie making experience were represented well here. And um, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I think I think the rating system's held up pretty good, all things considered. I think it really I think. has. I think yeah. it really has. Uh, by the way, AI says Bruce Lee said that. That's what AI says. So I don't know if that was Bruce, Bruce Lee. Lee said that. Yeah, that's. I'm not. I can't confirm that. That's what ChatGPT said. So we'll have to check other sources. But. Oh my gosh, I have. I I know I heard it. I have been unable to source the quote. In I'm not sure if I'm believing this. I've but been looking. I, I, I don't ask. believe it because that fucking thing hallucinates. All right, let's move on to Screams. And Screams are is an overall rating, and it is independent of knives and glasses of wine. How many Screams are you going to give this movie, Mike? Uh, You kind of convinced me. I I think I was ready to go one. But I feel like, you know, you made some compelling arguments that there's some artistry here, right? So as much as I don't necessarily like the film, I also have to put in the context of this is where I usually tend to get a little bit more generous because, you know, enjoying a film is different from appreciating the film that's one of the reasons we have these three axes right so it's like first of all it's a horror podcast is it scary that's first thing second thing is did we enjoy it not really i didn't um but i'm willing to sort of give it the one and a half i think i would have gone down to one normally but i'll go at one and a half i'll stick with that um because there was some real work put into this i don't know that it was successful and to your point it's difficult to put in the context of you know like you said would you go back was it meant to be seen multiple times i don't know but for me, I actually learned more you and I talking about this than I and I've watched it several times to make my character, which we'll discuss. And I still was foggy on actually the execution. Actually, watching the film is more confusing than reading the summary. Um, so, uh, yeah, one and a half. Yeah, I'm going to give it one. Wow. I'm gonna it, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to give it one scream. I cannot get on board with how inscrutable this script was was really difficult and it was included in what is supposed to be a horror anthology and it did not live up to i i can't think of any 
measure, you know, any facet of horror movies that this movie actually had in common with it. So it doesn't make any sense for all of those reasons. It was too difficult to understand what was going on. There were too many plot threads. The female characters were, they did a great job, but the Ruth character played by Zazu Pitts, who we haven't even really discussed yet. Yeah, um, yeah. Who was apparently, and I'm saying this, I didn't know it. Mike looked this up. Zazu Pitts mm-hmm. was apparently the inspiration for Olive Oil. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you've watched the movie, you will make that connection yourself, perhaps even independently <laughs> of my saying so. And she was a very well-known actress, worked a lot, and was known as a comedic actress. However, the character was annoying, as Olive Oil is kind of annoying mm-hmm. in that way. The Ruth character, well-dressed, good-looking, did what she was supposed to do. She could have done more. Dr. Everett sort of leaves her behind while he goes and solves what's going on. And she's left to be sort of picked up by the police. So there wasn't a lot there from a sort of a feminist perspective either. So there wasn't a lot of redeeming things in it for me. And then also at the end, I don't know how you I don't know how a person who is experiencing a medical event, amnesia, could consent to whatever was going on <laughs> in Sybil's house that we don't that yeah. we don't know. There and, was, get, yeah. and get married. Yeah. So we we didn't even scratch the surface of consent on his side, man. No. But yeah, yeah. No. So <laughs> okay. all of that, all of that bad. So one scream for me. Okay. <laughs> I, now I'm like, oh, I, I went off and you went down. <laughs> but it's okay. Mike, you created a character for people to use in their tabletop role-playing games that is based on this movie. Who is this character? It's kind of funny because I, you know, I make these characters and then you have to sort of dig, you almost have to unspool them when you made them first, right? Now we, we're going to the movie again in much more detail. Um, and that's why one of the, I, I sort of spent some time digging into who's the real villain here uh, because he almost is behind the scenes most of the time, except for the occasional phone call and the confession at the end. Um, so it's really Joseph Chandler. Uh, he's an interesting character and, again, not touched on in the story, in the movie, really, which is essentially he is using this funeral parlor to cover up crime. Or should be. He's doing a very bad job. It's like a front. So he's kind of not really using it to its full potential because his employees don't know what he's doing. So that's the first problem. Uh, but he has some minions who he can certainly use to... Uh, to cause trouble. And um, so he's an interesting mix. He's a, he's a essentially kind of a cleaner in modern terms, right? So I use him as sort of, if you take him out of the context of this bumbling stupidity that happened in the film, he's a compelling character at the far end of a crime organization, right? Where they have a body they need to cover up and they need to do it in a way that is not super obvious. Um, so, uh, I think he actually provides a really good service. So yeah, it, it's the, uh, Chandler undertaking parlor, um, which may be from the film. I don't remember if I did that research. I think so. And he's sort of this half elf who is a combination of a necromancer and an illusionist who, uh, essentially specializes in disposing of bodies. 
Right. So no offense to people in the undertaker's profession or trade. It does seem to be almost a perfect way to enter into the crime world and to do all sorts of things. As we've seen in other movies and TV shows as well, that this often enters into it, that people are in, you know, everything from forensics to to being a funeral director. What do his stats look like, though? Where does he have a strength that he's able to commit these crimes? Yeah, so he's a he's a wizard, and um, as a result of a wizard, he's sort of got again this dual specialization of necromancy and illusion. So I actually go through what it would be like to do cover up of a crime in magical terms. So in Dungeons and Dragons, you have spells. So it's very there's actually a structure to work with, right? So you can say, okay, so there's certain divination spells. He'll use arcane eye, clairvoyance, and locate object to find the corpse, right? So if you hire him. He's now got to find where the body is, right? So he does that. And once he's got his target, he's got to get there. So that's your dimension door. He's using invisibility, knock, which opens doors, and misty step, which lets you teleport. So now he's got his ability to transport himself or his minions to get there. And then he's got to cover things up, right? So that's your darkness spell. That's your hallucinatory hallucinatory terrain, uh, major image, minor illusion, phantasmal force, private sanctum, tiny hut, and hallucinatory terrain. I just said hallucinatory terrain twice. Um, That's the opportunity to sort of cover up the crime scene in the short term. That's just to get started. So then there's the cleanup. And then the cleanup is when he really goes to town. And that's when he uses spells like disintegrate, firebolt, which your character is quite familiar with, which is set things on fire, rope trick, and shatter. And that is really to clean up all the evidence and leaving very little material behind. But if he can't do that, obviously then that's where the animations come in and that's where you take the corpses and sort of walk them out if you need to. And that's where you use animate dead and create uh, undead to hide them, right? And use them in the parlor. So if you can't clean them up, make them completely disappear, uh, you use this other uh, opportunity to sort of do that. And then you got to clean things up, right? So the other thing is you go in there, you probably mess the place up. So then you got to use creation, fabricate. These are all spells that create things. Uh, mending, press the digitation, unseen servant, and then he teleports down. So it was really an interesting, fun sort of uh, deep dive into what a character like this with magical abilities would be able to perform in a world where spells are, you know, somewhat common. Uh, He doesn't have technology, but he does have these sort of spells that frankly, what's always interesting about this kind of characters is you can, because there is a rule set, this so Dungeons and Dragons specifically is a very rigid spell system. You can unravel it. You can figure it out. You can be like, somebody cast this spell to make this work. Some of them have duration. Some of them require material components. So he's not perfect, um, but he is trackable. And uh, I think that's interesting. That makes him an interesting character. Uh, so he's not so much usually a plot device, because frankly, this plot was a mess. But he is an interesting add-on to a situation where somebody's trying to cover up a crime. So here's my question about this, though. Mm-hmm. He has a lot of spells available to him, and that's how he's doing these things. Is there anything that he does practically? Is there anything that he does using scientific methods or using perhaps people that work with him, work under him to achieve these goals? Or does he use magic for almost everything? No, you're right. So he has um, uh, Sutherland and Nolan. I think that's taken their names from the story, from the movie. Um, And he has these two guys who are essentially there to really, they're first of all his muscle. Um, but they're doing the the manual labor. So a lot of this is to clean up what they do, right? So 
as much as he does it himself, he's really doing, they're going in as a team of three to clean up, grab the corpses and move everybody out. And some of these things are not as quick as they sound, right? So create undead, I think, takes longer. So even if you say, well, I'm just going to animate the bodies and have them walk out of here, which of course you have to cover up, you can't have witnesses. Um, he's got to do some dirty work. So this is not a clean operation as much as he's a cleaner. It is very much sort of a situation where he does need the help. The other thing that's sort of interesting is he's actually quite dangerous in his parlor. Um, I really doubled down on the idea that he uh, can use those embalmed corpses because he does a lot of that stuff in the parlor and he can use it to animate them, to protect him if he needs to. So um, as much as he's out in the field, if you decide to go after him in his parlor, and again, taking inspiration from the fact that the body moved, we knew that was a person who wasn't dead, um, he can actually make the corpses uh, either terrify people or actually move a little bit, not fully animated, to sort of defend him. So he's kind of a fun guy. I, I, I kind of, this is one of those things I always surprise myself because you start out and you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. And by the end of it, you're like, I kind of like this guy as a villain. He's sort of, he's again, middle management for sure. But he's um, he's pretty flexible and he's interesting because he sort of is the character that shows up to other crimes. He's not the one who commits them. He's the one who who sort of gets pulled in after the fact. And he's probably the kind of character you potentially could see, you know, protagonists or heroes encounter because he's the one after the the perfect crime has been committed to to uh, that comes into conflict. So he's not perfect. Uh, the magic is not uh, foolproof. And he does have to get his hands dirty with his men for that reason. Mm-hmm. All right. So not having a good understanding of sort of the uh, the undertaker trade. <laughs> I imagine that it only shows up in certain places that right. depending on the campaign that you're playing, it could be that when someone dies, their family just buries them and there's not a lot of oversight or structure that goes on there. So what kind of societies, what kind of places would this character be most at home at? Yeah, you make a good point, which is um, a lot of times because we translate these characters from modern times at the earliest, it's sort of a steampunk level technology, right? And you often need a, a pretty dense urban area. So this is a city villain for sure. Because um, otherwise, like you said, well, then he just, you know, buried in a grave, nobody's going to look. Um, there's assumption that there's both police or some kind of law enforcement that's going to investigate, uh, that witnesses matter. You can't just intimidate them or pay them off. And that there is a place where he could have his p- funeral parlor and have it be successful and relevant, right? So... Um, there isn't a there. It's funny. I didn't mention it. There's a spell that lets you preserve corpses instead of embalming. That's what he probably does. And that's good enough. So, yeah, he's definitely a city villain, um, which uh, he needs a pretty strong criminal enterprise that's interested in covering its tracks to be successful. So, yeah, he goes hand in hand. Uh, he'll be in uh, our villain supplement, which I'll mention in a minute. But he he's definitely part of sort of a criminal organization for sure. All right. So to that point, Mike, go ahead and tell us where people can find this and the other characters associated with the other 49 movies in this <laughs> series as we cover oh them gosh. in 50 Date Night Screams. It's a lot. It's a lot of, it's a lot of villains. Yeah. So um, this is part of, he is part of the uh, 5E Foes Gothic Villains, uh, which includes all 50. Uh, many of them are legendary. They have pretty strong power. He's actually a legendary villain. Not everyone is, but they're all different tiers of legendary villains. Um, and uh, that supplement has all 50 of them. So he's available in there. That's on Drive-Thru RPG. And that's actually bundled with a supplement. It's actually called, uh, I think I, th- I started calling it the 5e Toolkit 
uh, for Gothic campaigns. There's uh, a supplement that goes with it called 5e RPG Gothic Adventures, and that's got rules on madness and sort of a lot of the grim stuff that goes on that goes with the genre. So those two you can buy together. You can buy them separately. We're also releasing them on Patreon. So my Patreon, which is patreon.com slash T-A-L-I-E-N slash Talion. Uh, we release one villain a week. We've actually been doing it. And uh, we have different pieces. We have a, this character piece will be on there. We also have the stats. And uh, that will be available for free for anyone just to get a taste of sort of how the villain would operate. But anything like the organization or any of those extra rules like other minions, all that stuff is actually in the... Uh, gothic villain supplement so patreon.com slash talion is included by the way so if you are a patreon if you're a patron of mine uh at a certain tier i think the tier three you get this supplement for free it's included as part of your subscribership uh, but we will release him for free to the public as we've been doing with all 50 and uh, make sure he gets out into the wild as well so you multiple ways to find and download him Right. And you can also find lots of other little extras like videos and so forth that uh, we aren't releasing in other ways by following you on Patreon as Talion, T-A-L-I-E-N, or in following you as World of Wellstar in the social medias, the book face and the Instagrams and so forth. All of that information will be in the show notes. And Mike, I just wanted to go back really quickly because you did say something about, you said your character meeting me, Amber, my character, (laughs) in the campaign that we're currently playing where I play a tiefling fire mage who, I will point out, does try to solve problems without lighting things on fire. Uh, However, (laughs) it is my party mates who one of whom is a tiefling, a couple of whom who the players are, we've been friends with for more than 20 years. Mm -hmm. So they do very much enjoy goading me into lighting things on fire (laughs) and often do. And it, I will say I try not to, but sometimes we have been in a wooden structure and they get very excited and really encourage me to light things on fire and then I, what, they want me to do it. So it just, it happens. So, yeah. 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 That's, Libraries. That's Libraries. You know, wooden structures, forests. Tower, forests. <laughs> yeah. Lots of places with wood. Fire. Yes. Your character yeah. uh, definitely uh, is. Um, I mean, look, Fireball is a very large area effect spell. But uh, the reason that we actually brought up is Firebolt, which you've learned as well, is sort yes. of a. It's not even the fireballs that get you. It's the fireballs that cause a lot of the trouble because you have set things on fire. I think you set a train on fire once. I'm not really sure. We are not supposed to talk about the train that got set on fire. You're right. We're not supposed to talk about that. Oh, goodness. That is something that me and the other tiefling in the party. Don't talk about. Covered up. And we only discuss it. R.I.P. Dwarven Engineers. In our own private tiefling (laughs) meetings. You know what might be fun, and this just occurred to me at just this moment, is if we released some of the characters that you and I have played over the years as sort of just, here, you want to play this character? Here's this ready-made character. I played a necromancer once, so I know that it takes... It takes some time. You can't just animate bodies. It takes a little time. It right. also takes some materials. It's not as it should be. It should be a difficult thing to do. And it is, even in a magical 
world. So that might be fun. That might be something to think it's about for idea. the future. As extras, or, for sure, yeah. As extras, as something yeah. that, hey, you want to play the same character that Amber played, you want to play the same character that Mike played, or, you know, any any of the other characters, maybe we can talk some of our current or former players to get in on that. and Because they have come up with some really interesting interesting characters i think so oh we're, we're, there's another podcast brewing i know i know well <laughs> reach out to us on the social medias or on patreon if that's something you're interested in we can we can certainly think about doing that full of ideas all of the time just lack the time and the energy to execute them. All right. So, Mike, I think that will officially do it for episode 28, Strangers of the Evening of 50 Date Night Screams. We've officially talked longer than the movie, which is not out of the ordinary for this show. Any last thoughts, Mike? I just want to thank you for sticking with this because um, this is hard. This is homework. And you did really well because I I actually got a better sense just talking it through. So I hope listeners do as well because I, I appreciate the work. Because I like I said, I've watched it. I haven't watched all these films multiple times. I actually watched this one multiple times and I still didn't get it. So kudos to you. Thank you for doing the work. Are you saying I'm smart? Uh, yes. Yes, I am. Everybody on the podcast. Yes, I am saying you're smart. Actually, at least we're saying you're diligent. I mean, I guess smart goes with it, but diligent for sure. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, right, right, yeah. Okay. Well, all right. You, you back. That wasn't great. You should have just left it where it was. Yes, <laughs> yes is the answer. Once again, just cut it at the yes. Call your wife. Tell her she's smart. Okay. All right. Uh, thanks so much, Mike, and thank you to the listeners and the viewers for those of you that are viewing the little videos and the clips that we put up. Thank you so much for being here. We. Appreciate you, and we will see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to 50 Date Night Screams. Be sure to check the show notes to learn where you can watch this movie for free. The quality isn't always the best when streaming, so we've also included a link to where you can purchase it. You can also get much more information, including the characters from this and all the 50 Date Night Screams episodes at betrayon.com slash Italian. Until next time, don't stop screaming. 50 Date Night Screams is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by Amber and Mike Tresca. Okay. Me, 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 me. Me, 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 me. All right, here we go. Make a pleasant face. <laughs>